I think this is going to have profound changes that will last at least a generation. It's hard to know exactly what those changes will be, but there are going to be changes in terms of um, how we understand our relationship to each other, to technology, to science, to government, uh, to international institutions. I think all of this is in play right now. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, we are coming to you today remotely. I'm at my home in the Boston area, and my guest is at home on Cape Cod. At this time of tremendous concern about this global epidemic, I recently asked myself if there was an environmental economist, which is what this podcast is about, who could join me on this podcast to speak intelligently from research and experience about the situation we now face. And the immediate and obvious answer to that question is our guest today, Scott Barrett, the Lenfest Earth Institute Professor of Natural Resource Economics at Columbia University, where he also serves as Vice Dean of the School of International and Public Affairs. In addition to being one of the world's leading authorities analyzing alternative approaches to the threat of climate change through international treaties, which many of our listeners may know for him, he has also written for more than a decade on an economic perspective on global infectious disease policy. In addition to his scholarly work, Scott has served as an advisor to many international organizations, including the European Commission, the OECD, the World Bank, and the United Nations. And although he might actually wish to forget about it, he was also a lead author of the second assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And finally, I'm very pleased to say that Scott Barrett has been a frequent participant in our programs and projects here at Harvard, and also has been my personal co-author on a number of occasions. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much, Rob. So before we talk about your current thinking about the pandemic, which we really do want to do, and perhaps if time permits about climate change, let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. Where did you grow up? <laughs> I grew up uh, in uh, very close to you uh, in Wellesley, Massachusetts. In Wellesley, Massachusetts. And yes. was, that, was that where you were at primary school? Yes. And high school as well. Yes. And then tell us about uh, college. Where did you go? I went, well, I mean, I applied to one place. Uh, it was UMass Amherst. It was the only place <laughs> probably that would have taken me, uh, but also the only place I could possibly have afforded. And I lucked out and got a great education there. And there you studied resource economics. Is that right? Yes. So in the 1970s, they had a program in environmental and natural resource economics. So I, again, I really lucked out. I fell for the subject instantly. And there were great faculty there who uh, inspired me and gave me a lot of support. So I'm always grateful for that early experience. Now, from there, you wound up at the University of British Columbia. How did, how did that come about? <laughs> well, 
in the late 1970s, uh, UBC, as it's known, had, I think, the best program in environmental and natural resource economics anywhere. Um, maybe by the time I arrived in 82, it was not quite the best. It may have slipped just a tiny bit, but um, I had never even been to the West Coast, Rob, at that point. And uh, so I was looking for yeah, higher education, but I was also looking for adventure. And um, I really loved UBC. It was a wonderful experience. And again, I learned so much. Um, in fact, I mean, the work I do even to this day was influenced by both the institutions I just mentioned, both UMass and UBC. And you did a master's degree at UBC, is that right? That's right. And, you know, I, I recall a book that I learned a tremendous amount from that I still really value. It's titled Mathematical Bioeconomics, and it's by, it's, I believe it was by a professor at UBC. Is that right? Yeah, that's by Colin Clark. Colin who, Clark. Yeah, yes. and a, real, a real giant in this area. He was actually on leave uh, when I was there. Um, but one of the people that had a big influence on me there was uh, someone named Anthony Scott or Tony Scott. Of course. Who, yeah, and really kind of a you know, major figure at that time in a lot of ways. But what was special about Tony was that he had a real a feel for and appreciation of institutions. And this is at a time when most people were focused, most people in economics were focused much more on mathematics. And again, that had a big influence on me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a great experience. It's interesting because um, Harvard has something called the candidate chair. Uh, which is opened every year across the university, any department, any school, uh, for someone to come from a Canadian academic institution. And I believe when I was either first on the faculty or perhaps when I was still in graduate school at Harvard, um, he came for a year and sat in that chair for a year, and I got a chance to uh, meet with him several times. Yeah, you know, actually, I was invited to a meeting at Harvard, I think you were not there. That's unusual that you and I weren't at the same meeting at Harvard. But um, he was, and I was one of the speakers, and I was really pleased to be able to stand in front of an audience and tell everyone the influence that Tony Scott had on my work later. Yeah, that's wonderful. I can imagine it. Now, from there, you wound up at the London School of Economics. Was, was that direct? And how did you happen to go to LSE? Well, there was nothing I ever did in my life was direct. <laughs> um, it, um, I, I worked for a couple of years after doing my master's and uh, then I went to LSE and I, I went there uh, partly, uh, Rob, because I'd never been to Europe. Again, I, I, was, I didn't have the opportunity to travel when I was young, uh, which is kind of funny when you look at my life now, but I didn't have that opportunity. And even more importantly, um, I looked at all the academics in the world who in this area who excited me and there was one who just really stood out and that was Partha Descupta. So I really went to London because I wanted to work with him. I wanted to learn how to do what he did. I think in the end, I don't do exactly what he did, but the influence there has been uh, lasting and the, probably the deepest influence of my life. And you've remained close with him over the years, right? Yes, we're we're still very close. In fact, we just wrote a paper uh, that is coming out. If it hasn't, I think it may have already come out in the PNAS uh -huh. uh, with with other author, authors as well. Um, but yes, he's a close friend, uh, a great mentor, and uh, quite an exceptional, uh, brilliant mind. That's for sure. 
he also spent time at Harvard. He was actually, you know, as, as you're, I'm sure you know, he was on the faculty in the economics department and then chose to leave and to go back, I believe, to Cambridge. Right. He, he uh, I think Cambridge has been his love. So yeah. uh, his wife is uh, from Cambridge mm-hmm. and um, they made that decision to settle there. And they're still there and still very happy there. So what was your first job out of graduate school? Was that directly to London Business School or is there something else in between I don't know about? Yeah, again, I lucked out. Uh, I didn't do the job market routine that uh, people have to do today. I applied for one job and I got it. Uh, it was wow. that simple. Yeah. And actually, I got the job um, before I had submitted my thesis. And I told London Business School that I would have it submitted within nine months or whatever the period was. And I mm-hmm. did. And um, they, But they hired me despite my interest, despite my research. And I loved being there. And, and actually, there were a bit surprising, but there were aspects of that job in that environment because it wasn't, you know, kind of a natural place for someone like me. But it, it turned out that that environment created all sorts of um, uh, opportunities for me for how I look at things. So I, I found that this is true in every turn of my life. Um, you know, you're teaching business strategy, which is about a very horizontal world. It's actually kind of similar to how countries interact. So um, in a funny way, I've seemed to make uh, these circumstances and opportunities um, make sense <laughs> and show up in my work. Yeah, I know. I, th- I think sometimes when one looks back at one's career and the time path one's been through, it can seem as if it was linear, but actually there's a tremendous amount of serendipity that's involved <laughs> along the way. Yeah, it's funny that young people, they probably, you have a, probably have a similar conversation with them, but they'll look at someone like me and they'll say, wow, how did you do it? Yeah. It looks like I was driven. I knew what I was doing every step yeah. of the way. And of course, it wasn't like that at all. Um, but I, one of the things I really enjoy about uh, surviving to this age is that I can look back on my life. And even though it didn't make sense um, at many points along the way, as I look back at the whole arc of the life, it does feel to me like it makes sense. Now, your, your next stop after London Business School was in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. Is that right? You were on the faculty well, I, there for a while. I was, I, well, yes. No, I was at the School of Advanced International Studies of Johns yes. Hopkins in Washington, D.C., though. I was right on Massachusetts uh-huh. Avenue. Yeah. Right. And um, the fact that you were a Johns Hopkins, was that partly because of something we're going to get to pretty soon, namely your interest in work in global infectious diseases, or did it start up because of being a Johns Hopkins, or is it simply coincidence? It's a great question, Rob. Actually, uh, I had done nothing on infectious diseases when I showed up at Johns Hopkins, but I had already um, become uh, fascinated with the topic, you know, mainly, not only because it's fascinating, uh, you know, intrinsically fascinating, but also because, you know, I've been trying to grapple like you with climate change for a very, very long time. And, you know, one way to do it is you just keep getting absorbed deeper and deeper and deeper into this enormously complex, fascinating uh, issue. And another way to do it, though, is you step outside and you look at other uh, situations that were similar in some respects. Of course, they're not going to be identical, but similar in some respects. Now, I became really fascinated by international cooperation as a general phenomenon. And it, when you look at that topic, the the, the, the the case from history that really stands out was the eradication of smallpox. And 
it happened that um, the person who ran the whole smallpox eradication effort was at Johns Hopkins at the School of Public Health. He was actually, oh, is that right? Yeah, he used to be the dean, and he was the one who led the effort for the World Health Organization. And uh, I just wanted to say that this is D.A. Henderson. Um, when I first um, was introduced to him, you know, he, he's a real giant, and he was just very welcoming. And he and I interacted a lot. He taught me an enormous amount. We actually co-authored a paper together. Uh, he has passed away now, but he was a real giant. Uh, he's one of the people who, again, had a huge influence on me. And now from you went from Johns Hopkins to Columbia, where you now are. Is that right? Yes, I've been at Columbia over 10 years now. And apparently you're going to stay there, or are we going to find out if I talk to you a few years from now you've moved on? <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think I'm, well, the, the future is always uncertain, but I'm, I'm quite happy there. And I'm so busy, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I, can't, I can barely lift my head up. Um, yeah. Uh, so busy right now, particularly in this uh, current stint as vice dean. I can I can imagine what that is, must be like. So uh, tell us. Let's move. Give into transition from your the history there to uh, the substance. How was it that you became interested in thinking about and modeling uh, major issues that require global cooperation for their resolution? Um, is there something in particular that brought you to that? Yeah, I think you know. It's interesting, you've been asking about my biography. When I was uh, quite young, um, one of the books that had an impression on me was a book by um, Aldo Leopold, not the one that's famous, the one about Sand County Almanac, but another one on wildlife management. And what he, he says in this book is that basically every part of nature that you see, it's there because we let it be there. So in other words, you know, I grew up in an era when people would talk about the wilderness, maybe as a kind of uniquely American kind of concept at that time. But um, all of a sudden, you know, I read this book and I just thought about it differently. It wasn't really clear that we actually had a wilderness or if we did, it was only because we allowed it to be there uh, or it didn't pay us to exploit it. So I started off from that dimension and then, you know, really quickly, the scale of the human enterprise, the accumulation of, of um, you know, misdeeds, uh, um, persistent uh, chemicals and, um, uh, you know, all, all the accumulative uh, changes we brought to the environment just made it clear that uh, the borders of countries were really, um, if anything, an impediment to addressing major challenges. So that's what brought me to focus on these transnational and especially global issues. And then how was it that you made, I, I wouldn't call it the transition, but you broadened your scope from a focus on environmental and natural resource issues to include global health issues? Yeah, that's kind of funny um, because people tend to think, well, first off, a lot of the environmental issues that we study are health issues, right? So when people talk about uh, air pollution, for example, I mean, really, you know, 99% of the reason we're looking at air pollution is its effect on human health. And, uh, you know, no one in environmental economics bats an eye about that. That's just accepted. But for some reason, infectious diseases are seen to be in some other territory and not part of ours. And I've never understood that. You actually can, you know, another analogy, we in environmental economics, we study exploitation of a fishery. So this is us going into a population, uh, a biological population and harvesting uh, for our own benefit. And you can think of uh, pathogens um, as being kind of the flip side of that, which is that 
Uh, they're the predators, we're the prey, and they're dipping into us. And what we want to do is take measures that will um, reduce the harm that's caused by that. So to me, it's just a natural that they be looked at together. And I've never understood why we haven't embraced the topic in that way. That's interesting. I mean, it's also the case that they're siloing of environmental studies and environmental issues from population studies and population issues, which mean, a, a lot of people would say yeah. that's that's a major part, obviously, of popula- of environmental problems are population pressures. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, that probably wasn't as true a long time ago. Parthen Descupta has written a lot on population. This new paper yeah. uh, I mentioned, you know, it, it probably is touching it. Well, is is to a large extent touching on population. I think in general, I think um, environmental economists have not really grasped the scale issues. Uh, I would, mm-hmm. Of course, there are always exceptions, and I don't mean to, uh, you know, make a, um, uh, a ridiculous uh, generalization. But I do think the scale issues are really quite important. And when you look at uh, climate, for example, uh, of course, we're always focused on decarbonization, which is really kind of a technology and investment issue. But when you think about what's driving emissions, it's not just that. It's also population. It's um, income per head. And, uh, of course, you know, ultimately we need to decarbonize, for sure. And, and Partha Dasgupta is really, more than anyone else, is someone who exemplifies looking very, very broadly across all of those areas. Yes, that, that's right. Um, he really has. I, yeah, I agree. So as an environmental economist who has thought you know, long and hard now about global health challenges, I am very interested to hear your reaction to what you see happening now in the world with the coronavirus pandemic. Just start us out wherever you like. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I mean, you know, this is a very difficult time for all of us uh, as individuals, as families, uh, as um, you, know, you and I, parts of universities. Our whole lives have been thrown up in disarray, and a lot of people are suffering. So there's that side to it, which is, of course, very concerning. There's another side to it, though, which I find is ultimately just incredibly fascinating. Um, and with infectious diseases, uh, you, you read history, which is very important, um, and you see episodes from history. And you know, one key thing to say, I think, about what the situation we're in right now is that you know, in some respects, it's completely new, and certainly it is for our generation. But in other respects, it's just been a long part of human history because there's always been the emergence of what we would call a novel um, infectious disease. And it's really shaped humanity over uh, a very, very long period of time. I'll, I just mentioned briefly you know, two major episodes from history, one being the plague, which wiped out about a third of the population in Europe in the 14th century and the other being the 1918-1919 uh, influenza pandemic. You know, those had really profound uh, changes on the, uh, on the world. And, and what were the nature of the, the uh, influenza pandemic? What, what are the kinds of ongoing influences you're talking about as opposed to what happened during the period of time? What were the lasting effects? Well, let, let's, let me go back, uh, if, if I can start with the plague. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so the plague, again, decimated the population in Europe. And uh, people have argued that uh, this is very strong evidence for, for much of what I'm going to say now. They've argued that that reduction in population, of course, it made labor scarce. 
as it made labor scarce, it not only increased wages, but also shifted power in the direction away from landowners toward the laborers. And uh, there's evidence that it actually resulted in the end of serfdom as an institution. Uh, and even to go further than that, historians have argued that it did um, quite extraordinary things as to, for example, usher in the enlightenment and uh, create um, space for the development of universities and for the appreciation of science. So really fundamental changes in uh, society. And as we look to um, you know, the current situation now, of course, we're, we're concerned with you know, what's happening today and all of that, and, and it's our, our lives. And I think that's all right. But there's another side to this. I think this is gonna have profound changes that will last at least a generation. And it's hard to know exactly what those changes will be, but there are gonna be changes in terms of um, how we understand our relationship to each other, to technology, to science, to government, uh, to international institutions. I think all of this is in play right now. And indeed, some of what you've described of changes in the past, they, they were positive changes that resulted from you know, terrible periods. Yeah, there, there were. Um, of course, you know, many people died, so those are all negative. So no, I'm talking. They, but in terms of <laughs> in terms of the long term effects, you said the the uh, right. the rise of universities, for example, of you know higher education. Yeah, yeah, no, and and of course, there's not a single cause you know cause for something like that. It's going to be a multiple of things, but um, but 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 there there will be changes. I I don't think, Rob, that we can expect that all those changes are necessarily going to be good. I think you know it could go in different directions, and that's why I think there's so much to play for here, because in a way we have an opportunity, um, and we need to be alert to that because um, you know the moves we make now are really going to change how people look at those different things I mentioned before, like government and so on. I mean, looking at shorter time horizons, I'm convinced that the the post-pandemic economic equilibrium is gonna be quite different in some specific ways from the pre-pandemic economic equilibrium. One of the obvious ones is that corporations around the world are gonna realize that they can save a huge amount of money without a massive loss in benefits by avoiding international travel and using Zoom and the other platforms for meetings. I mean, you're, you like me probably have been in countless Zoom meetings, you know, with colleagues or teaching in the last couple of weeks and have come to recognize that. And in private industry, where it means a change in cost structure, I assume that's gonna be part of the new equilibrium. Sure, yeah, I think that's right. We're basically being forced to do things differently. Right. And right. we're going to, you know, we're going to discover that, you know, some of their, some of your old prejudices um, may, uh, you know, you may have to reconsider. I've, I've never been a particular fan of online teaching. Yeah, myself. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think I'm still not a big fan of it, but, but I, I also can see the advantages and I can imagine, you know, that um, in the future, uh, having done this, um, I'll find ways to do it again. Uh, even if it's not the only way of, of working. But of course, you're gonna have other things, you know, real devastation to the economy. Uh, the equity issues, I think are gonna stand out very starkly. Uh, I think confidence in government and uh, the role of the private sector and whether all parties are chipping in, uh, all these different things I think are gonna be uh, 
very important, how they shape how we look at the future. So you mentioned government. So I want to turn to public policy. You know, focusing on this country, on the United States, what's your candid assessment of the policy that's been coming out of Washington? Well, um, there's a path for the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, you've got, um, uh, I, I'd say, a patchwork. I mean, you don't have the feeling that there's a command coming from the federal government. Uh, the states are, in many cases, really playing the lead. Uh, mm -hmm. You're seeing, for example, now in New York. Um, so it's interesting that right now the status is, uh, and this is true within the United States, it's also true globally, despite the authority, which I think now the World Health Organization has, has, has reclaimed on this issue. Um, but the approach that the world's taken has been very fragmented. And that's also been true in the United States. Uh, you know, a number of, um, you know, one thing that really stands out is just the failure of the United States to be prepared. Um, you know, I did want to say since, um, you know, you and I think probably a number of your listeners are, are interested in climate change, that, you know, with time, climate change, you've got these long lags uh, between the time you need to act and you actually um, get a result. And of course, if you act to avoid climate change, what you'll find is hopefully you will avoid climate change and then you're never quite sure <laughs> was that because you acted or it wouldn't have happened anyway. Um, well, here, of course, everything's moving very quickly. Um, and you're seeing in the data that um, uh, you can uh, practice social distancing, but it takes a while for that to start to show in the statistics. The thing I wanted to say about this is that because of the, because, because of the history I discussed before, uh, scientists have been saying for a very long time that there's not a question of if we would get a pandemic, I don't mean exactly like this, but maybe in general character like this, it was just a matter of when. It wasn't a matter of if. So I think this issue of preparedness is, is serious. And it's clear that you know, our inability to do testing has um, really compromised um, the health and well-being of Americans. You know, I don't know if you saw them in, in the Wall Street Journal and in the New York Times this week. There were a pair of articles. I think the Wall Street Journal was first, then the Times the next day describing some economists thinking how they would approach a, a appropriate policy to address the pandemic. Did you, did you see either of those articles? Uh, I didn't see it in those papers. It's possible that, that someone sent me an email about that. Um, well, so to, ask, so to ask you a question, <laughs> let me d describe one facet of them. Right. And that is there was a focus on the potential use of a benefit cost framework or net present value analysis. And therefore, both articles raised the correlated need to quantify the benefits of reduced mortality risk in order to be able to compare them to the economic costs. And that brought up the whole notion of, uh, you know, VSL, value of statistical life, which is uh, quite controversial, certainly outside of economics it is, maybe within economics. I would just would love to know what your thinking is about that. Well, as a general matter, I'm very much in favor of doing this. Actually, um, recently I was appointed uh, to a strategic advisory group at the World Health Organization on uh, the possibility of eradicating malaria. And I believe I'm probably the first economist to be invited onto a body like that. 
And um, the thing I've been trying to impress upon those people, uh, which I think they have um, you know, warmly accepted, is the need to do benefit cost analysis. In this case, it would be about um, getting rid of a disease that's already uh, present. Um, and you know, I think with the value of a statistical life, you know, it is um, kind of a vexing topic for a lot of reasons. But I think it's very important that we make as explicit as possible the consequences of different choices that can be made. And if people feel uncomfortable with the number there, which I would understand, what you really want to do is ask the right question. And then having done that, use the analysis to say, well, how important is that number in arriving at the answer? Right. And the sensitivity I, analysis is often what's key. Yeah, sensitivity, but also framing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you often don't need to know what the number is. You need to know, is it big enough if, you know, for, for a decision? So I feel like in so much of the work we all do, I feel that there's a combination of art and science. And if you approach, if you approach it that way, I think you can have more success with the work. So let me ask you this, is that it would seem to me that an additional potential role for economics in terms of identifying appropriate policies going forward for this current pandemic, an additional use of economic analysis that would avoid the, the controversy uh, and the necessity to use VSL and would also avoid the necessity to get into the tremendous uncertainty there is on the biophysical side in, in terms of saying what those benefits will be, what the mortality will be you know, in the future, that instead there is a lesson that could be learned from what economists are doing in climate change policy and in other areas of environmental policy. And Namely, instead of doing benefit-cost analysis, doing cost-effectiveness analysis. Take some policy objective as given, such as maximum mortality number, target mortality risk reduction, or more simply, the specified case transmission rate, and then compare alternative policy instruments you know, um, and compare them in terms of their respective economic costs, which might include the current approach of social distancing, self-isolation to suppress the curve, but might also include what people are talking about increasingly, it seems, a targeted approach to reduce emissions, more testing, more contact tracing, and more and better facilities to separate out those who are really sensitive and those who need to be treated. What do you think of the potential use of cost-effectiveness as, as a useful tool in this current policy situation? Okay, so a couple quick thoughts. I mean, first, in, in the area of public health, cost-effectiveness analysis, is it dominates. It's the most important tool that's used. That's certainly true with infectious diseases, but I think it's true of all of public health. Uh, you typically will see calculations done for a particular intervention in terms of dollars per DALI. It's called disability adjusted life fee or something like that. Um, I, I, you know, it's fine that this, you know, this again, this is 99% of work is done in this area. And it's fine. Uh, I think for a lot of the decisions we're interested in, that's not the right way to go. I think you want to focus on, um, uh, on using cost benefit analysis. I mean, certainly for a decision like should we eradicate a disease? Um, you know, should we um, develop a, a stockpile of uh, a vaccine in the case of an outbreak? Uh, all these kinds of decisions, I think that they're much more appropriately looked at 
in a cost-benefit uh, framework. I'd say on on the current crisis, COVID nineteen. I think, um, you know, I, I my first thought would not be, hey, we just need to do a lot of cost-benefit analysis. I mean, we are facing a crisis; lives are at risk, and we're there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think um, the logic has been explained pretty well by the medical community that. Um, we don't have the tools we want. We don't have vaccines. We don't even have treatments. Um, and we don't have hospital capacity. By the way, these were things that people have been arguing we needed to have. Uh, so, um, uh, but we made choices and we are where we are right now. Um, and I, I think that what we're talking about right now um, is a kind of a triage, which is a kind of you know cost-effectiveness analysis that's done uh, by docs in uh, ER rooms all the time, emergency rooms all the time. And uh, that's basically what they're doing. If they have to ration ventilators and so on, that's what they need to do. But we need to, um, you know, I think the one, one, one last thing I want to say about this is when people start, in, you know, talking about cost-benefit analysis, um, you know, the focus is often on the totals and not about the distribution of the costs and benefits. And one thing we can say about COVID-19 right now is that it's a pretty equitable scourge. I mean, you've got, you've got, um, uh, you know, you've got uh, healthcare workers and uh, um, uh, people who work in grocery stores, and you've got Tom Hanks, and you've got the wife of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau all infected. So, um, you know, in, in a way, you know, it's a, kind of a nice thing, uh, if I can use that expression, that it's a kind of an equitable uh, and, and it's in everyone's interest now that we control it. Um, I think just the last thing I want to say, uh, Rob, maybe we could shift to another thing, is I think the externality side to this is really interesting, and I think it's really significant. Um, so that's just one, I, just, I will raise a topic with you. <laughs> well, the whole notion of an infectious disease is itself an externality, right? That a carrier gives it to someone else, that's an externality. Right. And what's happening is um, people are taking, you know, really quite radical. I know the news is filled with stories about people aren't doing what they should be doing. But really, yeah. what's impressive is how many people are doing what they should be doing. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's striking. I wouldn't have thought that this would be possible. Before we wrap up, I want to take you back to something that's a, that's a broader question um, about your research portfolio. And I know this is like asking you to identify your favorite child, but <laughs> looking at your entire long, long CV across many different areas, climate change, infectious disease, other areas, um, what is the one publication you are most proud of? And, and I'll already condition this by saying that present company co-authorship should be excluded, <laughs> of course. Um, it's my first book. Is that right? Uh, okay. Yeah, it was called Environment and Statecraft. I know the book. It's a wonderful book. And I spent um, seven years writing it. Now, it wasn't the only thing I did over those seven years. And I wrote a lot of papers, uh, which I needed to, um, you know, to get the material. So I knew what to say in the book. But what I like about the book, because uh, we don't often, you know, in our areas, we don't often write books. But some topics are so big. You, you really, you know, what you do with an article is you're, 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 you're coming up with a fragment. And, you know, an issue like international cooperation on the environment, it's, it's more of a mystery than anything else in my mind. 
So you collect all these fragments. Imagine that you're the archaeologist or the investigator, and you want to know, okay, if I piece together the fragments, can I find the puzzle? You know, the the the, the solution to the mystery to the puzzle, and that I find um, of everything I've done the most gratifying. So the individual papers I write, for me, they're always just pieces, and and a book I think at least has the potential to be a more um, you know, a, a fuller um, uh, image of what we're really trying to understand. So my final, my final question to you is, is really to ask for your prediction, or maybe I guess it's your best guess, of where we're going to be with this pandemic a year from now. And the way I think about this question to you, Scott, is if you and I get together to do another podcast in March of 2021, and then I say, you know, Professor Barrett, could you please reflect back on what the world and the United States in particular have been through? What's your assessment? What do you think it's most likely from where you sit now that you may find yourself saying then? Well, I mean, you know, things are changing so rapidly. I mean, if you had asked me that two months ago. <laughs> um, yeah. So. It looks to me like this is a persistent uh, challenge. I know that China uh, and some other countries have had some success in limiting cases. Um, I think we're going to get better at it in some respects, but I want to go back to this thing that's very fundamental. It's in all my research, and, and it's the essence, I think, of economics, which is incentives and how incentives drive behavior. And what's critical about this is that if you live in an environment where it's risky to um, stand close to people, not to wash your hands and all the rest of it, then you change your behavior, which is what people are doing now. So people are responding to a very powerful incentive for um, survival or you know, well, you know, their own uh, personal safety. Um, as the disease becomes less uh, prevalent, as you see less of it, the risk falls, and therefore that behavior is going to be modified, and people will take more risks. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to, I, I don't see, because we won't have technical remedies, it doesn't look like we're going to have a vaccine that would be available at least for a year and a half, probably two years. That's a long time. And the 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 coronavirus seems to have evolved to be quite stable in the uh, environment. So, you know, SARS was totally different. Um, it wasn't as stable. And on top of that, uh, uh, you wouldn't transmit uh, unless symptoms showed. So it was much easier to control. Um, I think widespread testing is going to help a lot. And as people have noticed, as more people fall to, uh, to COVID-19, uh, if they survive, uh, they'll uh, inherit, they'll, they'll have immunity. Um, at least for some period of time, because we're learning as we go, uh, but they'll have some immunity. So that will offer a measure of protection for others. So, um, you know, it's a really hard to, to know, but I think it's, I think the battle is still going to be waged, um, waged a year from now. Um, we'll move a little bit more towards normalcy. We a guess. These are all guesses. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But it's still going to be there. It's still okay. going to be there. 
So in that case, maybe I'll wait two years before I invite you back for another <laughs> podcast uh, discussion of this. Uh, listen, Scott, thank you very much for having taken time to join us today. This has been fantastic. Our guest today has been Scott Barrett, the Lenfest Earth Institute Professor of Natural Resource Economics at Columbia University, where he also serves as Vice Dean of the School of International and Public Affairs. Uh, please join us again for our next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.